this morning, when I finished my regular Sunday routine of praying and writing a sermon, there's some people who think I only work a half day a week, so finishing those things up, I was walking in the house, and on the counter there was a magazine, and up in the top right corner was an article title, and this was the title, Solving the Mystery of Jesus' Wife. I really needed to read that. I had a little bit of time, I got up early, so I pulled it up and I start reading it. Um, there is a piece of papyri, a papyrus, a little old paper, um, about the size of a business card. Um, it's been around for a while, and it has on it something that mentions and what sounds like Jesus having a wife. And there are some scholars that take this very seriously. Um, even from places like Harvard. Now, what struck me about the article is, number one, by the time you get to the end, even the guy writing the article wasn't real convinced about this little piece of paper. But number two, and this is what really stuck out to me, is at the beginning, he started talking about the ramifications of this being true. If this was real, if Jesus had a wife, what does that mean? And why would the church want to hide it if it is true? What would the church lose if this were true? Okay, and here are some of the things that came up. Right? Number one, that we wouldn't have an issue with celibacy in the priesthood. Because if Jesus had a wife, it's really hard to say that priests should be celibate, right? Number two, that we could have Women disciples. I thought we could have women disciples anyway, but um, number three, we'd have to rethink all of our thoughts on leadership when it comes to what a woman can do in a church. I'm not really sure the connection between Jesus having a wife and that, but that was one of them. There were this list of all these things why the church is going to hide this. Let me tell you what I thought. I thought they missed the biggest ramification of all. If Jesus had a wife, and it's not mentioned in all, none of the 27 books of the New Testament, then something's seriously wrong with our New Testament. And that's actually the argument that this little fragment is older than what we have, and it's real, and what we have is not. I mean, that seems a little more serious, like, Jesus wasn't the Savior. That seems bigger to me than celibacy. You? Do you ever feel like at times you miss the point? you ever feel like you're, you're fighting for something and maybe it's not the most important thing to be fighting for? You're putting all of this energy into something and maybe it's not quite the most important thing to be putting your energy into? I feel this way at times as a dad... Like I'm trying to get my kid to do one thing and I'm just fighting tooth and nail for it and if I just step back, I go, that's not really as important as some of these other things. I, now, I do that with my wife a lot. There are things she thinks is very important and I'm fighting for the wrong things most of the time, it seems. But like just the most important thing, not just these things, the most important thing. You ever wonder if maybe you miss some of that in your Christian walk. What really 
is important. I mean, if you just made a list, if you started, if I gave you a piece of paper and I said, write down 10 really important things about Christianity, like this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what we're called to by God. What would be some things on your list? We've been studying Philippians. We're going to start verse 27 today of chapter 1. Here's what's interesting. In the first 26 verses, Paul doesn't actually exhort them at all. He has yet to give them a command or an exhortation or like, go do this. What he's done so far is he's encouraged them and he's tried to help them understand what he's going through. We hit verse 27 and we finally get the first kind of punch. Here it is, guys. I've been talking about the gospel for 26 verses. Now, here it is. Open your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is his first command. And it is the one command that goes all the way through this paragraph and picks up the next 11 verses of chapter 2. Only let your life be worthy. Let your conduct of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That little word right there, only, that is Paul's little transition word to come out of these 26 verses, or yeah, 26 verses, where he's been going, you are partners in the gospel. The gospel matters more than anything else. As long as you are honoring Christ by advancing the gospel, that's what matters. Only let your life be worthy of it. You want to know what's significant to Paul? Is that you and I have a conduct of life, a way of living that is worthy. Let me talk about the word. It means to match up to, means suited, suitable for, right? It's the equivalent of, you know, imagine going to a job interview and you're wearing your pajamas. Is that suitable for the job interview? Probably not. There's certain things that we know that if we're going to go here, we dress like this. If we're going to talk to this person, we talk like this. There's a certain respect. It's that idea. Here's the gospel. Let your life match it. Let the conduct of your life and who you are match that. What is the gospel? There are some of you, as soon as I say that question, especially if you've been to seminary, you've gotten your head, it's huge. There's so much to the gospel. It's really big. I'm going to just distill it a little bit, okay? This is not the whole, full gospel, but I'm going to give it to you in a kind of a nutshell. You and I are rebellious sinners against a holy God. Every single person in this room, 
and every single person outside of this room. We are rebellious sinners against God. For that, we deserve judgment. And not because of anything that we did. In fact, in spite of what we have done and continue to do, in his grace, God gave his only son that whoever would believe in him might have eternal life. Abundant life now, eternal life forever. That we would have forgiveness of our sins and a new kind of life. We could live differently in the power of the Spirit. We could be people who recognize we are saved by grace, not because of anything we did. In fact, we did the opposite. And yet, he loved us and did whatever it would take to save us. And Paul says, will you conduct your life in a way that is worthy of that? Arlington National Seminary. Seminary. I've got that on my brain. Cemetery. Sometimes they're equated, though. Is where the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is at. And if you ever read on it, um, it's very fascinating. Um, these guys have been guarding the tomb 24 hours a day since 1937. Day and night. And, and this is what they do. They take 21 steps in front of it. And then they stop for 21 seconds, turn for 21 seconds, turn again, shift their rifle to this side so that it's between the crowds and the tomb, and take 21 more steps. During the winter, they do that for one hour at a time. During the summer, it's 30 minutes. During the evenings, all night, it's for an hour. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. They did it in 2003 during Hurricane Isabel. They did it during the snows of 2008 that like 10 feet of snow. They, they were still out there in all of that. They never stopped. What's amazing about what they do is in order to even be able to do it, they have to memorize seven pages of information that they give verbatim back, 300 more pages of information that they're tested on and have to get 100 questions correct. 90, out of, they get 100 questions, they get 95 of them correct. All of it is a volunteer position. They're not, they don't have to do this. They volunteer to do this. Why? Why would you do that? This is their code. My dedication to this sacred duty is total and wholehearted. In the responsibility bestowed upon me, never will I falter. And with dignity and perseverance, my standard will remain through the years of diligence and the discomfort of the elements. I will walk my tour in humble reverence to the best of my ability. 
It is he who commands the respect that I protect, his bravery that made us so proud. Surrounded by well-meaning crowds by day, alone in the thoughtful peace of night, this soldier in honored glory rests under my eternal vigilance. They do it for the great respect that they have for the people that are in those tombs. What they gave. This is their way of honoring those lives. The tomb is guarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In fact, there has been a sentinel on duty in front of the tomb every minute of every day since 1937. And the sentinel does not change the way he guards the tomb, even at night when there is no one around at night. The sentinels do this because they feel that the unknown soldiers who are buried in the tomb deserve the very best they have to give. Can we say anything less about Christ? Have you ever thought about whether or not you really give the best that you have to him? Or if it's kind of second best or third best or leftovers at times, the very best. Paul says, I want your life to be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that he would give himself when we don't deserve it. Is that your life? What does that mean? What is a life worthy of the gospel? Even if I want to do it, what is it? What's a life that's worthy of the gospel? Keep reading. So that whether I come and I see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you as you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I want to come back and drill down on that part right there, but I'm going to do the rest of this paragraph. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. They have people going against them. To stand for the gospel is going to cost them something. But he says, I don't want you to be frightened by them. And when you are not frightened by them, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, that they throw everything they have at you, but you don't stop. You are not frightened. You are not scared. You stand still for the gospel of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Have you ever thought of your suffering as something granted to you for the sake of Christ? That there might actually be something positive in the hardship. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. We're doing this together. You might remember back a few sermons. We are partners in the gospel. I am suffering, you are suffering, this is part of following. Hey, we follow a Messiah who suffered. We follow a master who was abused. If you're following him, you should expect that it might not always be pleasant because we're following a suffering Messiah. Now look back. 
I, that I may hear of you standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You want to know what a life that is worthy of the gospel looks like? And he's going to hammer it in chapter 2. We'll get there in a minute. Unity. It's us standing together with one mind, one spirit, going the same direction. It's all of us placing the gospel first so that no matter how you are serving, whether you are in front of a church preaching or you are taking chairs down, although don't do that today, according to Trey, whether you are talking to a neighbor and trying to somehow love on them or tell them about Christ, whether you are at your job and you make a decision that would honor Christ but may not be the best decision if you want to advance in your job, all of those, if we're all doing them for the sake of the gospel of Christ, then we're all unified. Paul's not talking here like we all have to get shoulder to shoulder and go do the exact same thing. It's one mind striving for the same goal, the gospel of Christ, that all our lives, wherever we are, wherever God has us, whatever ways he's gifted us, that we are using that to the best of our ability to honor Christ then we're all doing it together. Now, there's times where it's literally together. We're here right now. At the end of the service, we're gonna send a mission team. We're gonna commission them to go to Guatemala. They're doing it together. There are net groups. There are Bible studies. There's lots of ways we actually do it together. But more than that, where is your, for a minute, individual, where is your focus? What are you living for? What if we could all stand up together and go, I'm living for the gospel. And we could all stand together like that. Imagine what that can accomplish. And it's absolutely central. On your list of 10 things, does unity make the cut of the 10? It's all over the teachings of the New Testament. Remember Jesus with his disciples saying, a new command I give to you, love one another even as I have loved you. And by this, by your love for one another, all men will know you're my disciples. It's all over. And here's Paul with his first command, live a life worthy of the gospel so that when I hear of you, when I see you, whatever happens, I will know you're standing together. It's hot. Anybody notice? We've hit summer. It's like really hot. And I decided that uh, my wife really likes to go outdoors, and it's getting harder and harder to go outdoors. And so we decided to do a misting system, um, but they're kind of expensive. And so we went on to the you know, do-it-yourself thing on YouTube, and I learned how to do one. And so I went yesterday to buy the supplies to buy this mister to cool the patio off. And uh, I walk up, and I really don't know what I'm doing. And I walk up to the section where it's all at, and there's two other guys standing there. And they're also staring at all of this stuff. And so we're just kind of standing there, and you can tell that nobody really wants to look at anybody else because none of us know what we're doing. So we're all standing there just staring at all the pieces, and 
one guy reaches up and he grabs the, the piece that has the, you know, it's a little plastic thingy that's got the other thingy on it that sprays water. I really don't know what I'm doing. And he pulls that out and he's like, so how far are you going to space yours? And I'm like, I got this. I watched YouTube, 24 inches. He goes, oh, yeah. The other guy next to him, oh, yeah, oh, that's right. I'm going, yes, I got one. And we're just going through this thing, and we're both just, all three of us are talking. And what's awesome is one of the guys is a little bit older, and I came without my wife. I think the guy came without his wife. But the older guy has got his wife standing back there, and she's just watching us. And at one point, she goes, you boys know what you're doing? Of course we do. We're men. We know exactly what we're doing, even when we don't know what we're doing. That's what guys do. Well, I got all my stuff, got it back home. I have not built it yet. I'm, I, I will eventually, I hope. Um, or there'll just be, you know, PVC pipes sitting on my patio for the next two years. But one of the things that was there, and it's right next to all the supplies for this, is a single mister. And it's this like windy thing that you just hook your hose up to, and you can set the single mister to blow on you. I thought about it. In fact, I thought about just getting like eight of those, <laughs> like hanging them from my ceiling, you know? But what the reason I'm doing the mister is because in researching them, if you have enough of them and they're spaced the correct distance apart, the water that they go it shoot into the air, now it's not as effective in Texas because we have huge humidity, but it does help. It, it lowers the temperature of an entire patio. And depending on, I mean, the best places is where it's really dry and really hot. Like there's studies showing you can lower the temperature on a patio 40 degrees. Won't happen here, but I'm, I'm hoping for like 10 or at least getting wet. But like... You, that's why, because you put these things up, and, it, and the whole thing, but that single mister is never going to do that. It needs all of them working together in order for that to happen. That's what we are called to. You and I pulling the same direction. You and I putting our shoulders down and pushing together in the same direction. That's our calling. That's a life that is worthy of the gospel. Not just individuals, but a community going that direction. How do we do that? Chapter 2 and verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, do you have any encouragement in Christ? If there is any comfort in love, do you have any comfort from God's love? Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, does that apply to you at all? Do you have any of that? Do you recognize what it is that God has done for you? Do you recognize what he has sacrificed on your behalf? Do you recognize what he still wants to do in your life right now? If any of that is true, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Still same language. We're picking up the same idea. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now he's going to explain a little bit of what that is. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. 
do any of your actions come because you're jealous of somebody else? Do any of your actions come because you want what they have? Do any of your actions come because you just think you are better than this other person? Don't let your actions come out of a rivalry or conceit. But instead, in humility, there's our key word, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility. In humility, count other people more significant than yourself. Think more about them, about what they're going through, about what they're suffering, about what they might need, about why something's so hard for them. Stop thinking so much about you, about how much you need or want or deserve or are treated poorly. Start thinking about others. Humility. Paul says, live a life that is worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? It means to be unified. It means to be pulling the same direction. It means to be working together. Well, how do I do that? Because I'll tell you what, some of you tick me off. Carol. <laughs> there are things that happen regularly, and I'm, I, I, I say that first part jokingly. I say this very seriously. It makes, me hard, it makes it hard for me to want to work with some people because they're doing things that maybe I don't agree with. They're doing things that I do differently. They're doing things that I think are wrong. They're doing things that I think they should be not doing and they should be doing it like this. And I get really focused on me and it gets really hard to want to strive, especially with that person or those people or that group, really hard to want to strive with them. And here's Paul saying, in humility, consider others before yourself. Look at what they are going through. Look at what they might be working out. And yeah, maybe they don't agree with you. Maybe they're not doing it the way you want to do it. But really, is yours the only way? I mean, mine is sometimes, but come on, tell me you don't feel that way sometimes. I mean, if you were to step back, you'd really be like, yeah, this is, we are not God. Which means we don't always get it right. Humility. You want to strive with others? It's going to require looking at others. Considering others before yourself. I thought this was really kind of neat. Um, anybody know the name Marian Anderson? Okay. Um, she's a singer. Um, she, she's passed, but she is a singer in the 20th century. African-American growing up among all uh, the stuff. I mean, she was kicked out of venues and but she is considered by some one of the most important voices of the 20th century. Her manager, this is part of an interview of her manager. A few years ago, a reporter interviewed Marion and asked her to name the greatest moment in her life. What's the greatest moment in your life? I was in her dressing room at the time, and I was curious to hear the answer. 
I knew she had many big moments to choose from. Okay, just listen to her repertoire here of things that she's done. There was a night that Tuscany, tu- tu- I forgot, I can't say the name now. My wife referenced she Tuscanini, is that correct? Anybody? Okay, told her that hers was the finest voice of the century. There was a private concert that she gave at the White House for the Roosevelts and the King and Queen of England. She has received the $10,000 Bach Award as the person who had done the most for her hometown in Philadelphia. To top it all, there was Easter Sunday in Washington when she stood beneath the Lincoln statue and sang for a crowd of 75,000, which included cabinet members, Supreme Court justices, and most of the members of Congress. Which of those big moments do you think she would choose? And he said, none of them. Miss Anderson told the reporter that the greatest moment of her life was the day that she went home and she told her mother she didn't have to take the washing anymore. That's a focus on others. The greatest moment of a life that had so many amazing moments was what I did for my mom not standing in front of the king and queen, not singing in front of 75,000 people, but what I did for my mom, that's humility. When I'm thinking of others, when I'm concerned about others, and here's the thing, this is the key. Ready? You have to hear this. This only works when the entire community does it. Because here's why. It may be that Carol and Clark are giving of themselves over and over and over again. They are giving of themselves. They are serving other people, trying to sacrifice everything they can. But nobody ever sacrifices anything for them. I don't care how much you love Jesus. At some point, that's going to be hard. At some point, you're going to feel taken advantage of. At some point, you're going to feel rejected and hurt. Friends, we all have to do this. Because I know some of you are trying to do it right now. But when we all do it and we're all looking out for each other, then it gives me the freedom to not have to look out for me. Instead, I can look out for you because you're looking out for me. And we can do this thing as a community, sacrificing all we are for the gospel. And here's the biggest reason that we do this. Go back into your Bible. Whether or not it's ever done for you by another person, ultimately, it has been done for you and for me. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Just let that sink in. What is the greatest humility you've ever shown? What is the greatest sacrifice you ever made? 
What, what is a time when you completely felt that a person had just attacked you and you did not attack back and instead you prayed for that person? Because whatever your lowest point of humility is, it will never be as humble as Christ because you never started from the same place. Can you imagine the humility of being God? Infinite, all-powerful, creator of all things, and then making yourself a servant of your creation. I think as parents, sometimes we get a little feel for this with our kids. I clean up the playroom at least twice a week. It's a total, utter disaster. I've got three children. They make it a total, utter disaster, and I clean it up. And every once in a while, I will say to my kids, go clean the playroom. And my five-year-old in particular will say, but it's not all my mess. Do you know what goes through my head at that point? I start thinking, really? Where'd you get those clothes? Where'd you get food this morning? Why do you have a roof over your head? Let me just do a whole list of things that you have absolutely nothing to do with that I completely do for you, even when you have this attitude. And then I start going, oh Lord, give him a kid like him. No matter how much you and I humble ourselves, he humbled himself more. And understand, he did it when we weren't asking or deserving of it. And how many times, I asked you like weeks ago, if you had to make your little marks of how many times you sin and need forgiveness, how many marks would you have? And yet, he is still forgiving you He is still coming after you. He's still loving you. He still wants you to be a part of what he's doing. No matter how many times you turn on him, he humbled himself from God to serve us. You can't out-humble that, hey? Keep going. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, How far have you humbled yourself in obedience to the Lord? Because he went all the way. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our Savior. That's the one who reigns right now, that we get in this life the opportunity to bow the knee before and to serve in humility by serving each other, by walking this path together, by pulling the same direction as one body humbled before our Lord because he humbled himself first for our sake. Here's my message. The gospel 
is the ultimate message. It is salvation, it is eternity, it is abundant life, it is the kingdom of God, it is all that we have and all that we will have moving forward. It is that big. And it was done because God so loved the world. Even when we were total screw-ups, God so loved the world. And what he's asking is that our conduct, our manner of life is worthy of that gospel. Which means pulling together. Which means being humble in one another's presence. It means recognizing we're all going to screw up sometimes. Some of us a whole lot of times. But humbling ourselves and forgiving and still striving forward. Putting the right thing first. And let me just tell you, if that's not up on your top list there, you're missing something very significant. Um, this is a card that my daughter made for me for Father's Day. And I'm going to read the card. And then I'm going to tell you what I told my daughter. Um, and, and if you've ever gotten a Father's Day card from a girl, your daughter, you, you, all these words are probably going to be part of it. I love you, Daddy. You're the best daddy in the world, and you make me smile. Dear Dada, I love it. She's 10, and I'm still Dada. Happy Father's Day, Daddy. I love you so much. You're the best dad in the world, and I love spending time with you. I promise that will never change. I love you. You're kind, smart, best dad, superhero, caring, awesome. Uh, she has best and then a world that she drew, dad, with a heart on the world. It's wonderful, it's awesome, it's beautiful. But this line, I promise that will never, ever change. I said, honey, that is the most important thing to me in this card. I love all the rest. You know, I love the, you know, I love superhero especially. That's <laughs> my favorite one. Uh, but... What matters to me the most is that it never changes. That my 15-year-old daughter, my 20-year-old daughter, my 30-year-old daughter still wants to spend time with me. That's, for me, that's up here. In your Christian walk, what's up here? What's that top thing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we will never be able to thank you enough for what you did. For the love that you have that you would give your son. And then as we go through this life, every week we have confession in church. And every week, if we all had to make a list of the times that we've screwed up, the ways that we've treated people poorly, the ways we've turned away from what you want, the ways we've just ignored you, we would all have a list and yet you forgive us, you lift us up, and you keep pushing us forward in love and grace. Lord, help us to honor that by living the same way, by letting the gospel be the way our lives are lived out and conducted in the things that we choose and the relationships that we have, that we might strive together with one spirit and one mind for your kingdom. 
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.